American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about music, sports, art, love, death, business, and sometimes public policy, when the public policy hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And one of the groups we love to hear from the most is the Goldwater Institute. They brought us the story on Right to Try, a movement they inspired to give dying patients a right to try experimental drugs that could save their lives. Check it out at OurAmericanNetwork.org. They also brought us the story of Dr. Carol Landrum, the 88-year-old doctor in rural Mississippi who traveled to patients who otherwise wouldn't have had a doctor anywhere nearby and how his own state government tried to take away his medical license because he didn't work in a traditional office. These folks at the Goldwater Institute fight full-time on behalf of the least vulnerable in society and never at a cost to them. But this isn't just work for the folks over there. It carries over in some cases and hopefully in most to their personal lives. And that's what we're going to explore today with their president and mother of three adopted children, Darcy Olson. And we're celebrating, of course, all month long, National Adoption Month. Darcy, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for all the work you do and for collaborating with us. And we look forward to doing many, many more stories about the important work you're doing. But I'd like to start here with uh, an earlier moment in your life when you were a drug counselor, of all things, Darcy. How did you get into that line of work? What was it like? And were there any moments from that that meant as much to you as anything else in your life, looking back in retrospect on that experience? Well, so... I was a drug counselor in a transitional house for, for veterans who had, uh, who had served the country, most of them in Vietnam, and they had gone through a 30-day drug rehabilitation, and they were living in homes trying to, um, trying to get the good habits back in life and find jobs and connect, reconnect with their families and so forth. And I, I was very blessed to have that job. I was a student at Georgetown and I needed to work to help uh, pay for that. And, um, you know, I applied for it and I remember uh, the interviewer saying, because I am Caucasian and most of the clients were not. And one of the questions that she asked was, you know, how are you going to relate to these people who don't look anything like you and they're all men and they're all older? And I said, well, um, we're all people. And um, the problem of drug use, reconnecting with family, getting a job, um, needing, to, um, needing to find our spiritual, our best spiritual life is, you know, that is not, we're not bound by color, by age, or any other limits. And I said, we all have that in common. And I said, we're just going to connect as people. And sure enough, I went in there and I looked a little bit different and there was a little bit of skepticism. But at the end of the day, um, I made some wonderful friends. And I think um, I learned a lot from these, from these men. And one of the things that I learned is that the rain falls on us all. A lot of people think that uh, drug use or alcohol use, um, these abuses, and you, you know, must be they, may, they must have had bad parents, or maybe they weren't well educated. Um, one of the men I remember most fondly was a graduate of Harvard University, and that was a very humbling life lesson to look around and never take for granted where you are in life, and to know that challenges will come, and. Um, you know, we all need to hold hands and help each other through these things, not pass judgment, but just be there for family, for friends, and strangers who are going through these life challenges of mortality. 
Yeah, and to offer them unconditional love, because you're right, the rain falls on us all. And sooner or later, something's going to come down the pike in your family or your immediate friends. It is inevitable, Darcy. It's inevitable. Definitely. And I think that is where we can all connect. You know, when your heart is open, people feel that. And, you know, I felt that. And I think that they felt that. And uh, I would just, I've been... Um, lucky that, you know, I, you said, how did you get into that? And I just, I have always had a heart for justice. When I was a um, little, I think the first time I made a petition to petition the government for a change in the policy, in policy, I was um, about 10 years old. And I was very upset at the clubbing of seals. Um, and so I made my own little petition for Greenpeace. And I walked it around the neighborhood and I had people sign it. And my views on certain things obviously have evolved since I was 10 or 11. But, but I think that that sense of justice, uh, the, the, the ability to look at the world and say there, there is a better way, uh, that, is, that is what has driven me in my work at the Cato Institute, now my work at the Goldwater Institute, and in my personal life, too. And we're talking to Darcy Olson, the CEO of the Goldwater Institute. And just a minute or so here, and we're going to get into it in much more depth in the next segment. But talk to us about what inspired you as a busy CEO to, and, and, a, single, and a single person to start to adopt children. What triggered you? Was, it, was there a sense of justice? Did justice prevail in this space on some level, Darcy? Definitely the sense of justice. And it, you know what's funny about some of these decisions, and I think listeners can relate to this, sometimes once you've made a decision, you think, "Why? what took me so long to get here? This makes the most sense. This is the best thing I've ever done. And I, I felt inspired to become a foster parent uh, through a few different things, including prayer. And um, when I felt that inspiration, I... I thought, this is wonderful because I am single and I hadn't met the right person yet. And I thought, well, this this is wonderful. This is how I'll be able to be a mother. Maybe it won't be the way that I thought it would be, but if it if it serves a higher purpose, and then, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll go with that. This is wonderful. And so I went in um, it, literally the next day uh, to start getting trained, and I, I talked to one of the women, and I told her about the place I was living in. And it turns out that my spare bedroom didn't meet regulations because, you know, all about government regulations. Yep. It didn't have the right size window or whatever. And she said, but you could, you could take a child under three and have them in your room with you, in your bedroom. And I said, oh, my goodness children under three, don't you have any two-parent families who can take the babies? Because that, you know, that's ideal. And what she said was, we have babies overnight in office buildings and shelters. So if you could open a crib, we would be so grateful. And you can hear it in my voice. I mean, my my heart just fell. And I said, I will absolutely open a crib. And you betcha. You'll do it right away. In fact, I got one ready right now. I'll get it together. I'll go to Costco and I'll have it slapped together in an hour. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Darcy Olson, CEO of the Goldwater Institute. We're not talking public policy here. We're talking about something even more important. Adoption and love. More after these messages.
This is Our American Story, and we continue our conversation with Darcy Olson, the CEO of the Goldwater Institute and the adoptive mother of three beautiful children. And let's pick up where we left off, and let's take that first child. First of all, were you terrified, excited, both? What did your, fr- <laughs> what did your friends think? What did your family think? And when that child came home for the first time, Darcy, what were the thoughts that came to you? Oh, my goodness. I was um, a little bit terrified, but mostly I was just so excited. I thought, well, this is great. I mean, I, you know, this is exciting. This is wonderful. So uh, everyone thought I was crazy. I mean, if you, if you accept, I have a few people in my life who, um, who understand inspiration. They understand prayer and they understand service. Most people just thought, how are, you know, they thought about the logistics. How are you going to do this? You're single. You're running the Goldwater Institute. And, and I've always believed that if you do what's right, um, God makes the edges just a little bit softer, and he helps that path. And I believe that, and I believe it to this day, that it has been much easier for me as a single parent um, than, than it should be, because, because those blessings come. Um, but my very, first, my very first one, so the day after I was licensed, I got the phone call for her, and they said, we have a little boy who is in the hospital, can you go pick him up? And I said, sure, and I arrive, and it's a little girl. And, you know, that's how the bureaucracy is, right? They can't even keep track of these poor kids in the system. (laughs) And there's this tiny little girl, and so precious. And the nurse there said, "Uh, this is one of the sweetest babies we've ever had come through here. And she said, go ahead, pick her up, change her, and we'll roll you out of here, and you'll love this government regulation. They made me sit in a wheelchair and hold the baby to leave the hospital. And the woman pushing me was, of course, much older than I was. And I just said, this is crazy. Can I please just walk out of here? I'm taking your time. And she said, it's a regulation that when you leave with a new baby, you have to leave in a wheelchair. (laughs) So just an aside, very funny, all these regulations that pop up. But um, I ended up, I ended up that that, that, um, that beautiful, beautiful little girl did not have uh, any family capable of taking care of her. And she became my first daughter. And about the time she was turning one, I felt the feeling that I should open up another crib. And, of course, then people thought I was just absolutely crazy. Was I going to have two in diapers, and how is this possible? And I said, it will work out. And I opened the door, and this beautiful little baby came in. And within a week or two, I knew that she was going to go to an aunt, and it would be a real fostering situation. So we just loved her, took care of her. But a couple months into taking care of her, one of the people involved in her case came to me in the monthly meeting that we have and said, just out of the blue, as so many of these things have happened, and said, I have a little baby boy on my docket who will be going up for adoption, and I'd really like him to be part of your family. Would you consider it? And let me tell you, I, I got chills, but I said the same thing I said the first time I met the first regulator. Don't you have any two-parent families who can do this job better? And she said to me, I've interviewed a lot of two-parent families, but I know the future that he'll have with you, and I want him in your home. So that became my son. So I basically ended up with with a set of twins at that point in time. And um, all of the ladies at church helped. I I remember when we had to move into a bigger bigger house that it was like an Amish barn raising. Uh, All of the church ladies and all of the husbands were there at 6 o'clock in the morning, and by noon, they had packed and unpacked and moved us into a new home and even had the cribs and beds made for the babies in six hours. 
That's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And and I and again, you couldn't have planned for this. You couldn't have thought it out. Uh, and this is where your your prayer life and and deep connections to family, faith, and church. Uh, well, they take take the role of government away. I mean, this is one of the arguments we have in the public square regularly, Darcy. I mean, these these powers of individuals working together to do great things are always better than a than a faceless bureaucracy. Yes, and it it reminds me of I go back to Hillary Clinton's book, and it was well intentioned. Her her idea of it takes a village, and I know where the proverb comes from that everybody needs to love children and so forth. Uh, but that can be taken in the wrong direction because th- what it really boils down to is it takes a mom, it takes a family. Um, it's not about the amount of money a child has. It's not about social services. The thing that a child needs most in this world is a family to love, um, somewhere to go back to after they go to college, somewhere to call home, people to care for them, teach them, um, correct them, give them friends, family, teach them about uh, faith, service devotion, duty, commitment, all of those things. And none of those things can be as well done through a program as they can through a family setting. Even, I would go so far as to say, an imperfect setup. Mine is not perfect. Um, obviously, we're, we're still in search of a father. I, I was always joking about that. Um, fortunately, I have a wonderful brother-in-law who stands in quite a bit for them. But, uh, but it's still a family, and it's full of love, and it's full of faith and confidence in the future. And that is what these children need. So there are so many families out there I know who are listening. There are people who have struggled with trying to have a biological child. There are people who have looked at adoption and thought they can't afford it. And I would just like to say that being a foster parent, even if it's temporary, and sometimes it is temporary, it's not always an adoption, you are still a parent. You're still providing that love, and you're still, in my in my mind, um, still doing the Lord's work. And I hope that people you have open hearts to that and, and know about that. I, I wish I had known about fostering 10 years earlier because instead of, you know, now I'm on my, taking my sixth in, but, you know, I probably would have had 16 over time. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing, and it's, it provides the possibility for everyone to have a family. And I think that this is the longing of everyone is to have a family, and more importantly, to give love and receive love. And the best way to receive love, of course, is to give it, how has being a foster mom and now an adoptive mother changed you, Darcy, as a person? Uh, it's it's changed everything. Um, I think I think uh, you know when people always say when you become a parent, every time you read a news story about someone who gets hurt um, or they're suffering, you immediately think of your own child, and it it opens your heart in a in a in a new way, it's, I, I can't really describe it, except to say that I pass a lot, a lot less judgment on other people, and I have a, a bigger heart for love. I think, I mean, I still have a long way to go, but I feel like it refines you to be the best you can be. I mean, if you're if you if you're not patient, and you have three under two, which I did at one point, you learn patience very quickly, yep. and that that patience will translate into into all kinds of situations. So I think anybody who's been a parent or if you've been in a close relationship, even a close friendship or a marriage, those relationships improve you greatly and you become your higher and better self. So I I love that. And I'm so, so grateful for the way that um, 
for the things that I've learned and, and of course, the way your, your children eventually come, come to teach you. You bet. And talk to us about time management. How do you do it? And tell us the fascinating thing you told your employees to make sure you were being fair to them with these new needs that you had and these new demands on your, on your personal life. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Maybe a while back, is it when I told, it was when I told my team, if you ever feel like I'm not doing this job, you know, please tell me or just tell someone on the board and I will change my work. Yep, that? I, that's the one <laughs> yeah. where you, you said, look, I'll take a lower paying position if you all think this is hindering my ability to perform as CEO. And I want to, and, and you, I think you made this earnestly and honestly. To- oh, I did. And I, and repeatedly, I mean, I repeatedly <laughs> said that and I, and I meant it. Um, you, you ha- so the key uh, when you're talking about time management, you have to know your priorities. And I know the very most important job I have is, is being a mother to these children. And it is not to give short second shrift to the Goldwater Institute. I love this work. It's a calling, and I'll be doing it if, if I'm lucky for the rest of my life. But you have to know that. And so I did say, if ever you think this, that we are compromised in any way because of my devotion to family, I can do something different. But what I can't do is be less of a mother to these children. And, you know, it's, as I said, I think, um, I think Providence helps us when we make those right decisions. And sure enough, in the past five years when I've been taking in all of these children, we have had um, unparalleled growth over these years. And, you know, we now, uh, we're now litigating and working all across country, which we weren't doing. So, um, you know, I've slept a little bit less. Uh, I've <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you burn the midnight oil for a few years, but it reminds me a little bit of going to college and working. And I'm not afraid of a little bit of hard work for the right thing. So, you know, buckle down, don't complain, and keep your, keep your priorities straight, and all will be well. Well, you know, a friend of mine last night who just adopted four kids uh, at a time because his brother died in a tragic plane crash said, you know, I sleep a lot less, but I live a lot better. And uh, I couldn't think of a better way and a better toast to have. And Darcy, thanks for what you do at Goldwater. And thanks for doing what you've done for these children. Darcy Olson, CEO of the Goldwater Institute. It's National Adoption Month. And we're celebrating adoption stories all over this great country. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're about to tell you the tale of hidden treasures in America. The story of Forrest Fenn is one that captured the imaginations of people all over the country and the world. Here's Jesse. In the year 2010, a wealthy art dealer from Santa Fe, New Mexico by the name of Forrest Fenn hid a treasure chest worth over a million dollars somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. First of all, I'm really not that wealthy. I mean, I can live on the interest, and that's the definition of a wealthy person, I guess. I mean, uh, I have everything I want, but I don't want very much. Forrest Finn was an Air Force pilot with the rank of major, and he was awarded the Silver Star for his service in Vietnam. I had a hard tour in Vietnam. I flew 328 combat missions in in about 348 days. I was shot down twice. 
I took battle damage a few times. I lost some roommates. I, I lost 22 pounds and didn't even know it. And when I came home, I was, I was tired. After his time in the Air Force, Finn opened an art gallery in Santa Fe that openly sold high-end forgeries of famous paintings. I had no education. I'd been a fighter pilot all my life. So when I opened my business, I didn't have a painting, knew nothing about business, knew nothing about art. Uh, and so I had to start from scratch. My first two shows, I didn't sell so much as a book. And I finally told myself that I had a little bit of money left that I'd saved 20 years in the Air Force. I said, I'm going to spend this money advertising, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to slam the door and go do something else. And it started working for, for, for me. And, and I learned to play Monopoly in my art gallery. Every time, I, every time I, I sold a painting, I took the profit and bought two paintings. Then I took the profit and bought four paintings. And over a period of time, it, it took me two years before I could uh, finance my gallery out of accounts receivable. In 1988, Finn was diagnosed with cancer and came up with the idea during his illness to hide a chest full of treasure for anyone to go find. They gave me a one in five chance of living three years. And a lot of things were happening about that time. I was selling my gallery in Santa Fe and, and I had a, a lot of clients that were coming to see me to, to do different things. And it just so happened that Ralph Lauren came to my house. He collects antique Indian things like I did. He didn't know that I had cancer. But we were standing in my, in my library and I had something that he wanted. It was a beautiful Sioux Indian bonnet with white ermine hang, skins hanging on it and split antelope horns and it was a wonderful thing and he wanted to buy it. And I said, well, I don't want to sell it. And he said, well, you have so many of those things. He said, you can't take it with you. I said, well, then I'm not going. <laughs> and, and we laughed and changed the subject but that night I started thinking about that who says I can't take it with me what do I have to live by everybody else's rules if I'm going to die of cancer I'm going to take some stuff with me and I made up my mind so I bought this beautiful little treasure chest 10 inches by 10 inches and 6 inches high probably Romanesque 11th or 12th century maybe it held a bible or a book of days but it was wonderful had a great patina on it as for the treasure itself, Forrest Finn loaded the chest to the brim with gold, gemstones, and artifacts. There are 265 gold coins, American, mostly eagles and double eagles. Uh, there are some Middle Eastern gold coins that date to the 13th century. There's a little bottle of gold dust in there, and there, there are hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets, mostly from Alaska, placer nuggets. Two of them are so large that, that they're the same size as a, as a hen's egg. They weigh more than a pound apiece. And there, in this chest, I put hundreds of rubies. There are two beautiful salon sapphires. There are eight emeralds, lots of little diamonds, uh, pre-Columbian wakas, uh, 2,000-year-old bracelets, and a Tyrona and Sinu necklace that dates probably 2,500 years old. The fetishes on the necklace are made out of quartz crystal and carnelian and semi-precious stones. And it, I told myself I wanted it to be visual enough so that when a person found the treasure chest and opened it for the first time, they would just lean back and start laughing. 
Then came the task of hiding this treasure that was worth over a million dollars somewhere up in the Rocky Mountains, which could be anywhere from New Mexico to Alaska. And when I hid the treasure chest, I had to make two trips because the thing weighs 42 pounds. It's small, but its gold is heavy. And, and when I hid it and was walking back to my car, I started laughing out loud. And I said, Forrest Finn, did you really do that? <laughs> but, I, but, but I had a whole card. I told myself, if I, if I decide later I didn't want to do it, I could go back and get it. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, yeah, this, this is perfect. Why, why can't I influence somebody a thousand years from now? A hundred years from now? Okay, next weekend. <laughs> if you can find it, I think it'll be worth your while. A lady reporter from Texas called me on the phone and she said, Mr. Finn, who is your audience for this strange book? I said, my audience is every redneck in Texas with a pickup truck, <laughs> a wife and 12 kids who lost his job. I said, throw a bedroll in the back of your truck and go look for the church and take the kids. Get the kids out of the game room, away from their little playing machines and let them breathe the sunshine and the things that the forest has to offer. Wonderful opportunity. And I, just this last week, passed 25,000 emails from people and probably 15,000 of them have told me, Mr. Finn, we're not going to find the chest. We know that. But I want to thank you for getting me and my kids off the couch and out into the tree. Thousands of people have searched and continue to search for the hidden treasure of Forrest Fenn. And there have been at least four confirmed deaths from people who were following the cryptic clues that Fenn left behind in his book, The Thrill of the Chase. The main set of clues come in the form of a riddle a riddle that anyone can use to find the treasure for themselves. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. From there it's no place for the meek, the end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found a blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answers I already know. I've done it tired, and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. The eccentric millionaire who hid a treasure chest of gold somewhere out in the Rocky Mountains for anyone to find. It's a strange and yet effective way to leave your mark on the world. And unlike so many others, Forrest Fenn would have done things completely different had he been given the chance. If I had my life to do over, I'd change nearly everything. I'd do the same thing over and over again. You know, <laughs> you, you read in, in these different magazines, they ask the question, what would you change in, in your life? I wouldn't change anything. Everything's been perfect. You know, I think that's such an uh, idiot thing to say, I think. I'd do the same thing over again. Where you, Nothing wrong with slamming a door and starting out new again. Out of the night that covers me, dark is the pit from pole to pole. 
I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. And I think that's a good place to stop, don't you? For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and sciences, and straight to history, and your stories, too. In fact, some of our very best work has come from you. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll produce them, and we'll play them. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, our next segment is about, well, our favorite subject here on the show. We talk the most in the studio about food, but on the show, most of our content, the biggest category is music. And by the way, about everything, from Sinatra to Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, everybody. There's no music we prefer over another, including Vladimir Horowitz's story, the great Russian pianist. It's all good, and music is music. And we're about to take a short yet fascinating trip down a road that leads to modern-day hip-hop. In the beginning, the hip-hop scene was a raw, raw experience. It was an underground music expression that was light years away from the commercial enterprise that it became. But one music producer took the low-budget, lo-fi rawness of hip-hop and put his own polished spin on it, making it accessible to the world. And the world has never been the same since. To tell this story we must first take two steps back to the early 1970s. Here's Greg Hengler. In his 1998 book, For the Record, Sly and the Family Stone, Joel Selvin writes, There are two types of black music, black music before Sly Stone and black music after Sly Stone. Though their influence on hip-hop wouldn't be fully realized until the birth of the genre, Sly and the Family Stone had a major impact on hip-hop artists and their musical tastes, as well as the music that they would end up creating. Here's music historian Jason King. Just as the rise of female singer-songwriters in the 1970s meant that people like Joni Mitchell were able to produce their own vision of who they were in the recording studio, you also have the rise of African-American artists who start to use the recording studio in a way that's incredibly creative and very different than the past. People like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, and particularly, I think, Sly from Sly and the Family Stone. These artists became the producers themselves. Here's record producer Arthur Baker. He was his own boss. 
you couldn't think of anyone telling Sly what to do in the studio. Here's Q-Tip from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. I can talk about Sly and the Family Stone for a very long time. Okay, play it. Sly Stone brought in a song craftsmanship to funk that wasn't there. He put his own spin on it, and out came something really unique and bold and just fresh. Here's drummer Questlove, who performs with The Roots for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Because of the ongoing conflicts between Sly and his family Stone, he wound up doing his fifth record, There's a Riot Going On, by himself. Here's music historian Oliver Wang. Sly Stone was such a huge musical experiment. He would try playing with things that most other musicians hadn't thought about. He did it like what now we'd call a home studio. That's Sly playing bass, that's Sly playing guitar, Sly playing keyboards. Voice, he's programming, drum programming on the air, which is like early kind of hip hop. Some uptight producer would go, no, I don't want that. That sound, that doesn't sound like real drums. That was the point. It didn't, but it was something funkier. What he did in 1971 will be the gold standard for how musicians will create their music 10 years later. Here's Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. The significance of the black musician, songwriter, um, singer, producer, whatever. To me, it all boils down to communicating the lives we live. Here's music historian Todd Boyd. It's a generation of people who don't have access to musical instruments, who don't have musical training, they're using music to create new music. We took what was available and created hip hop. Why you serve? Take the train to the plane, drop a school on the church. It's like that. With hip hop, the role of the producer changes completely. You have producers sampling and using drum machines. Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley. The best producers, they have this ability to create a signature tapestry that makes all of these bits and pieces actually sound like an original composition. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. In the early 1990s, Dr. Dre basically put West Coast hip-hop on the map. He was notorious for having this sound that was unlike anything else. Here's hip-hop producer Hank Shockley. Gangsta rap. That music took on a life of its own. And it gave the West Coast and L.A. scene its own voice. Here's record producer Tricky Stewart. 
I remember the shift when NWA and Dre came into the scene. Sonically, it was polished, but at the same time, it was like this super hard West Coast sound. I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary, but my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube, because it's said it get funky when you got a subject and a predicate. And you felt Dre's presence as one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time, if not the greatest. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine. When we started Interscope, I didn't know anything about running a business, and I knew even less about hip-hop. So his fellow John McClain was an A&R guy, he brought this tape and said, we have to sign these guys. I said, who is it? He goes, it's Dr. Dre, it's his solo record, it used to be an NWA. I said, okay, I said, I don't really know a lot about it, but, you know, play it for me. One, two, three into the folk, Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the dope. And I didn't know a lot about it, I didn't understand the music, but I understood the sound. So Dre comes in. I said, Dre, who recorded this record? He said, I did. I said, no, no, not who produced it. Who engineered it? He said, I did. I said, wow, this guy's on to something. Here's Dr. Dre. Everybody has to have their own sound. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it different, you know? And I'm a perfectionist. Because no matter how hard you work in the studio, no matter what you do, you don't know if people people are going to dig it. It's, it's very easy to make a hip-hop record. It's not easy to make a good hip-hop record. When Dre came in with The Chronic, he was using live musicians and recording it very sparse. He's finding samples that we all overlook, pulling from funk and G-funk. You know, you listen to the sample on G thing. Here's RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. He's hearing things that the average ear will never encounter in a song. And then when he hears it, he'll pull it out. He will pull it out. Here again is Questlove. I'll admit something to you. I was one of the initial naysayers of Dr. Dre's The Chronic was like everything I didn't want hip-hop to be. It was clean, louder, bigger. I wanted my hip-hop dirty. This DIY approach, this very low-budget, lo-fi approach to making music. That's what I felt hip-hop should and always be. It took me 10 years to really understand where Dr. Dre was going. And now that I make records, now I understand why this album is so important. What he did for hip-hop and for sampling is that he proved that you can make a record of the highest quality as a hip-hop producer. Besides crafting and popularizing G-Funk, a.k.a. gangsta rap, Dr. Dre is the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment, and in 2008, he released his first brand of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. It was sold to tech giant Apple in 2014 for a reported $3.2 billion, the most expensive Apple takeover purchase ever. Dre's net worth spiked to an estimated $740 million. Dr. Dre got married to his wife, Nicole, in 1996. They have two children together, a son named Truth and a daughter named Truly. I'm Greg Hengler, 
and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And boy, we learn things here on this show. What a story about an American life, an American musician and producer. Dr. Dre's story here on Our American Stories. Habib and you're listening to the work of Guy Clark extraordinary songwriter from Texas who passed at 74 years of age songwriter poet, guitarist, husband, troubadour craftsman patron saint of an entire generation of bohemian pickers is how Robert K. Orman a great writer about writers in Songwriter Magazine wrote Revered by people like Emmy Lou Harris, Willie Nelson, John Prine, Lyle Lovett, Towns Van Zant, Chris Christofferson. You could just go on and on. All of whom viewed Clark's songwriting, which combined dark wit, romantic optimism, and weary skepticism as the highest form of the popular lyric. And you heard it right there, just in the beginning. And we're going to play you our favorite Guy Clark song in its entirety in just a minute. But Guy talked about songwriting to Songwriter Magazine, and we wanted to have you hear from him what he thought about this art form. I think the majority of my work is something that happened to me. I saw happen to someone else, or a friend of mine told me happened. You know, I mean, and there's a certain amount of theatrical and poetic license you have to allow yourself. You know, this. People are supposed to like it. That's why you're doing it. You know, it's supposed to be fun. It's not brain surgery. It's heart surgery. It's heart surgery. By the way, Clark was born in Monahans, Texas, on November 1941, raised in his family's shotgun hotel, where he learned about music and life from men like Jack Prigg, the well driller, who would later become the subject of one of Clark's most famous songs, Desperados Waiting on a Train. Clark family moved to Rockport, Texas, where Clark came of age before joining the Peace Corps as a young man. After the Corps, Clark eventually settled in Houston, 
where he would soon become a fixture in that city's growing songwriter community with folks like Towns Van Zant and Jerry Jeff Walker. Clark met his future wife, Suzanne Clark, with whom he'd stay married until her passing in 2012. They moved to Nashville in 71 and would live there the rest of their lives. And what's remarkable about Clark is, well, he wrote about life. Most of the really good songs are dead true, he told American songwriter. You couldn't make up Desperado's Waiting for a Train or any of that stuff. It had to have happened to have the song be there. And so we wanted to play, well, just one perfect song by Guy Clark. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, and once this song starts... You cannot stop it, which is why we want to play it in his honor in its entirety right now. Well, I was passing by a pawn shop in an older part of town Something caught my eye And I stopped and turned around I stepped inside And there I spied In the middle of it all Was a beat-up old guitar Hanging on the wall What do you want for that piece of junk? I asked the old man He just smiled and took it down He put it in my hand I Said, you tell me what it's worth you're the one who wants it Turn it up, play a song And let's just see what haunts it So I hit a couple of chords In my old country way of strumming And then my fingers turned to lightning Man, I never heard it coming It was like I always knew I just don't know where I learned it it wasn't nothing but the truth, so I just reared back and burned it. Nothing I couldn't pick Up and down the neck Man, I never missed a lick The guitar almost played itself And there was nothing I could do It was getting hard to tell Just who was playing who When I finally put it down I couldn't catch my breath my hands were shaking and I was scared to death. The old man finally got up and said, Where in the hell you been? I've been waiting all these years for you to stumble in. And then he took down an old dusty case and said, Go on, pack it up. You don't owe me nothing. And then he said, Good luck. 
there was something spooky in his voice and something strange on his face and when he shut the lid I saw my name was on the case This is Lee Habib The Life of Guy Clark Died today More after these messages and this is Our American Stories. And we love to hear from some of the greatest writers in this country. And some of our favorites are at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, We've talked to Heidi Mitchell, I don't know, probably a dozen times up till now. And she has a terrific weekly column that we urge everyone to go and read. And again, we do no politics here, no debating here, but we love good stories and interesting, interesting writers. And Elizabeth Bernstein is a writer at the Wall Street Journal and a columnist there. Psychology and relationships are her beat And we love those subjects, too. And she had a column that was called Fine-Tune Your BS Detector. You'll need it. And Elizabeth joins us now. Elizabeth, why did you write this? What about right now says we need to be fine-tuning our BS detectors? Well, two things, really. The first is I was attending a psychology conference in Atlanta a month or so ago, and there was a whole presentation. Researchers, psychologists, and actually computer scientists had started to research how to detect and how to confront BS. And the reason they're doing it, so my second reason for wanting to write this, first I was intrigued that they were actually studying, trying to quantify this in a scientific way, BS, but also there's so much more of it now. Uh, or it's, it's been around forever, really, but it's spreading faster and farther now because of the Internet, because of bots that go on the Internet. They're not even people that are spreading it with intent to harm. So um, these two things together, the fact that scientists are studying it and that it's spreading farther, we have to be more careful about it, made me think, wow, that's something we should look at. And by the way, this was the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, and the title of one particular symposium was BSing Empirical and Experiential Examinations of a Pervasive Social Behavior. So let's ask, what is BS? So BS is a form of persuasion, and uh, the the user is aiming to impress the listener by employing a blatant disregard for the facts. So they're just, it's it's different than lying. Lying is, I might want to impress you, I want you to believe what I'm telling you, but I know the facts, I'm just going to ignore them. The BSer could not care less about the facts. I'm just going to let them fly out the window, I'm just going to tell you whatever I want. And by the way, that's why we call them BS artists. I mean, no one ever calls a liar an artist. But you'll also, you'll hear it often. Oh, he's a BS artist, right? 
Yeah, because people sort of do it. You know, some people do it. We might all, somebody might even come to mind right now for each one of us. Like we maybe, we all know somebody. But um, people do it. They're very good at it. Just And what they're good at is ignoring the facts, like completely not caring at all if there's facts out there or not. Right. Harry Frankfurt, in his very interesting book back in 2005 called On BS, explored how BS is different than lying because liars know the truth and push it aside, while BSers don't necessarily care about the truth at all. Those are your words. So this, in a sense, the BSer is sort of like performance art, and everybody sort of knows what it is if they have any knowledge of the person doing the BSing. And uh, talk talk about that and why you had said a little bit about how social media was making this more explosive and all the bots. But what was the deeper reason for getting at this? Because something tells me that this is starting to show up on, on couches, in, in disorders. In, I mean, there are, there are real problems attenuated with this now. There are real problems. Like, look, we're in this uh, culture right now where people claim fake news. That's a lie and everything. It's almost like a defense. I can tell you anything I want. You can tell me back the truth, and I'm going to scream it above you. Fake news. It's a lie. You're telling me the wrong. Complete disregard for facts. We are in a culture that is changing fast. You know, I believe over the last few years, with the Internet, with things going on in the world, it's, it's, uh, the discourse out there is um, angry, and I, I'm not even going to listen to you. I'm just going to shout above you. And so in that kind of world right now, people who are doing that, who are these BS artists, can uh, be heard. It's almost like it's becoming a norm in a certain areas. And so that's why it really does. And with the Internet, so Facebook, I can post anything I want. And here's something interesting. People who, when they BS when they're susceptible to BS. It's it's the BS that they want to believe, right? right? So I may see something that says chocolate is healthy. Boy, I really want to believe that one. So I'm going to post that. I'm not going to check the facts. I'm going to tell all of my followers, hey, look at this awesome post. doesn't matter who wrote it. Be it. Chocolate is healthy. So we are susceptible to BS when we want to believe it, when it confirms our own bias. This is all out there in the Internet. Everybody's publishing everything they want on their own feeds. This is why in this environment it's really, really important that we sort of get a hand on what information is coming at us and learn to evaluate it. And also, it's exactly why the scientists are studying it now. They know that this is becoming more and more hard and more and more important. Yeah, and I think that you had a line there. It said, basically, if you agreed with the attitude of the BSer, it was great stuff. But if you didn't, it was propaganda. And that tells us, I think that has a lot to do with how we think politically and organized politically in this country and even on cultural, big cultural questions. And, and I think we've all had confirmation bias in this in this area for a long time. But I thought it was really fascinating was just the, the what happens with false news and, and rumors. And there was a study at MIT that you talked about and wrote about. Uh, tell the audience about that study, because this is what I found most interesting and, and most frightening about your piece. So MIT looked at, um, over a decade, if I remember, they looked at many, many um, rumors that were spread, information that was spread in tweets. And what they found out was that uh, the false information moved faster and farther than the truth. So when the, when the tre- tweets were based on true information, they did not go as far and they did not move as fast as the false one. And that is terrifying right now. So and what it is showing is what we were talking about, that people, when you believe it already, when it's your bias, say, you 
you know, my dog's a beagle. I want to believe beagles are the best dogs. If I see a tweet that says that, I'm not even going to read the story, see who wrote it. I'm going to move that fast through my Twitter feed, retweet it, because um, it just it is confirming what I want to believe. And so uh, that in this environment, you're right, is terrifying that, that this false information is uh, being spread more than the truth. You know, Michael Crichton, in one of his last interviews on PBS, was asked about, he had written a book about global warming, and he said, there is global warming. I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm as good as any scientist, but I don't know how bad it is. And I think the apocalyptic predictions may be over the top. And the interviewer said, well, why do you think it is that people respond to this the way they do? And he goes, try asking somebody, hey, did you have a good day yesterday? And, and you said, yeah, I had a good day and everything's good. That's not interesting. But say the seas are overcoming the world and make apocalyptic claims and suddenly you get attention. And I think you're sort of saying the same thing here in terms of false claims. Now, he, he thinks that's exact. Crichton was talking about exaggerated claims. And here we're getting right to the substance of false claims. You also write that false claims can override prior knowledge. So talk about that if you could. So people, we have this prior knowledge. I might, in the back of my head, know that beagles are not actually the best breed of dog. They're a little stubborn. They like to eat everything in sight. But I believe it. I want to believe it. And so when something comes at me that says uh, it's different, especially when it's repeated, this is one key thing. When information, when BS or any information is repeated, even just once, we're more likely to believe it. So uh, we, I may know in my head the beagles are not the best dogs, but if somebody tells me they are, I already want to believe it, and then they repeat it, I'm going to, you know, go for this. This is what I'm going to go for. Another issue that's really interesting in this uh, culture that we're in right now is we all use Facebook, Twitter, our social media to um, sort of broadcast who we are. So we want to broadcast something to our, our basically our like-minded people, our friends. And uh, we tend to then broadcast, we're susceptible then to both broadcast and believe that information that, again, confirms our bias. Uh, so I might be much more likely to read a false claim, decide I'm going to post it on Facebook because it says something about me. Again, maybe it says, you know, just to stick with the dogs, you know, I'm a beagle lover, I'm a dog lover, this is great. Um, it's called tribal epistemology. We're, we're singling to our tribe, this is who I am, these are my beliefs, I share your beliefs. And that's where a lot of fake news comes up to when we're busy telling each other, see, I'm one of you. Yeah, and who would have known with all this open platform and all this open sourcing that we would become much more tribal as a country? And I think everyone can agree on that fact, that people are now siloing more than ever. And now when you hear a differing opinion, you just call it a lie or you call it false. You can't even stand the idea that someone might disagree with you. You can't stand it. We're at a point where we can't even dialogue. And also, I think we see this, um, again, we don't want to talk about politics, but we certainly see it in politics. But we see it in science. We see it in all areas. I, you know, we get rid of people on our feeds if they don't show us what we want to see. Like, we just get, you know, oops, that person doesn't agree with me. They might be my sister. I'm going to get rid of her on my feed. Don't want to see what she's saying all day. So um, we tend to get, you're right, much more sort of closed in. Now my Facebook feed is just people like me, because that's what I want to see when I open my phone in the morning. I don't want to see anything that I find disturbing. Um, so you're right, we're getting smaller and smaller. And again, in that space, that's where this BS is thriving. 
Yep, and we're learning less and less as a result. I mean, no one, you know, the idea of a conflict of ideas, making and sharpening our ideas. Well, this this BS stuff plays a part of it. We're talking to Elizabeth Bernstein, and she writes a column at the Wall Street Journal on psychology and relationships. And let's keep doing this. I love your work, and we'd love to have you on our show more often. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for doing what you do and for writing this piece. Thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. I have sinned, dear father. Father, I have sinned. Try and help me, father. Won't you let me in? This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We love to talk about music here on this show. Every kind, jazz, rock, blues, classical. And we hope you love it, too. We also love this day in history stories, always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This one, well, it combines both. Because on this day in history, a man whose music you all know, and I mean you really know it, it's baked into the fabric of of the DNA of this country. On this day in history in 1854, this man was born. He was an American and a music man, and like music existed in time, and that time was a long time ago, a time where no one thought to complain that baseball, the national game, was slow. It was a time when America dared to believe in itself. He gave it all his gifts. He was John Philip Sousa. It all began in the capital city of Washington, D.C., where John Philip Sousa was born the first son and the third child of ten children on November 6, 1854. Sousa's father served in the Marine Band for nearly 25 years. If Thomas Jefferson established the Marine Band, it was John Philip Sousa who made it a musical organization of the first rank. Sousa's personal musical genius showed itself early. Sousa's teacher was incredibly demanding, and apparently no child psychologist. When the boy showed him his first composition, the teacher humiliated Sousa by hurling it away and announcing it as bread and cheese music. Sousa was eight years old. After suffering further indignities over the next two years, the boy finally one day almost used his fists on the teacher and declared that he was giving up music. Sousa's father, a wise man, said, All right, and got the boy a job in an all-night bakery while he continued regular school all day. After two nights, young Sousa was totally exhausted. The father then negotiated terms between his son and the music teacher and Sousa's musical gifts evolved in peace. When Sousa was 13, he secretly agreed to accept the offer of a circus band leader to leave home and travel with the Big Top Band. But Sousa's father, who had gotten wind of the plan, arranged something even more exciting to the youngster's imagination. The morning Sousa was to join the circus, his father brought him instead to the Marine Barracks and enlisted the boy in the Corps and the Marine Band. But by age 20, Sousa had given up the security of the Marine Corps 
and set out to make his own way in the world. In September 1880, the opportunity came that would lead Sousa to his distant place in the American pantheon. He was invited to re-enlist and take over as the leader of the Marine Band. The band made its debut at the White House on New Year's Day, 1881. His great marches that would establish his renown forever were captivating the nation. Among them, the wonderful Washington Post March. He composed the great march inspired by and named for the Marine Corps model Semper Fidelis, a Latin phrase that means always faithful. Then an enterprising promoter named David Blakely convinced Sousa to leave the Marines and go on tour with his own Sousa band. Blakely assumed financial risk and guaranteed a salary of four times over what he had been making. The band succeeded beyond Blakely's wildest expectations and lasted for 39 years. He had an uncanny knack for pleasing and surprising audiences everywhere. His range was astonishing. He was presenting music from Richard Wagner ten years before it was performed at the Metropolitan Opera, and because he knew the people wanted it, added jazz to the repertoire as well. He didn't care much for jazz, calling it music that made you want to go home and bite your grandmother. Sousa insisted that his sopranos had to be gifted, but they also had to be pretty. His instrumental soloists were superb, but they also had to be crowd pleasers. He drove himself to the point of physical exhaustion. And in later years, when everyone believed he had every right to slow down, he said, "When you hear of Sousa retiring, you will hear of Sousa dead." Between the band's success and the royalties on his compositions, Sousa soon became a millionaire. In 1910 and 11, Sousa's band made a tour of the world, but a few years later, the world itself was not so harmonious. When the United States entered World War One. Sousa immediately wanted to serve. He was by then 62 years old. Still, it was arranged for him to join the navy as a lieutenant. To feel closer to these young men, Sousa shaved his iconic beard and joked, "This caused Germany to sue for peace, since it made the Kaiser realize that no nation willing to meet such sacrifices could be beaten." By the 20s, Sousa had become a national asset, an institution. His birthday is bordering on becoming national holidays. Here's Sousa on his 75th birthday. I don't know whether I'm worthy of such an honor, but I'm going to accept it just the same. It isn't everyone that can get a cake on his 75th birthday. Sousa worked tirelessly for the rights of professional musicians. He, along with Victor Herbert. Had helped to gain copyright recognition for music used in piano rolls and phonograph recordings, and later on, radio. He coined the phrase "canned music" and was the founding member of ASCAP, the first organization to protect rights and collect royalties for composers, authors, and publishers from all uses of their music. On March 6, 1932, Sousa died unexpectedly in his room in the Abraham Lincoln Hotel from a heart attack. He was eight months short of his 78th birthday. He had been right about how the world would hear of his retirement. John Phillips was dead, and is buried at Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C.
the Marine Band commemorates Sousa's birthday every year with a ceremony at his grave. He wrote Taps, and with it, an anthem for America. He wrote it, he said, on shipboard one night standing by the railing, looking out over the ocean as he was returning from Europe to America, with divine inspiration, he said. It came to him, totally note for note, not one of which had to be changed when finally he set it down on paper. Fittingly, the last piece he conducted the night before he died, and probably the best words I can say, is the stars and stripes forever. John Philip Sousa, This Day in History. And what a story. 62 years old, and he wants to join the Navy. Wow. You talk about loving your country. This is why I hate it when people mock people who love their country like that. You can choose not to love your country, but don't make fun of people who do. And my goodness. Talk about stepping up. Also founder of ASCAP, the writer of this music that now is just classical American music. And all of it today brought to you by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to go to learn everything about American history, about life, about philosophy, about the arts. And of course, always sports. You'll play it if your child goes there, if you go there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you went to college and never felt like you learned enough, if you didn't go to college and want to learn some more, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu and check out their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis course is a must. In Economics 101, I just loved it. And my favorite, the Constitution 101, I learned more taking that class than I did in three years of law school at the University of Virginia about my own country. This is Our American Stories. and this is Our American Stories. The Old Man in the Sea is a short novel written by Ernest Hemingway in 1951 in Cuba and published in 52. It was the last major work of fiction by Hemingway. It's one of his most famous works and it tells the story of Santiago, an aging fisherman who struggles with a giant marlin far out in the Gulf Stream off the coast of Cuba. We join Santiago at the climax of this American classic, with a dramatic reading by the great Charlton Heston. For an hour, the old man had been seeing black spots before his eyes, and the sweat salted his eyes and salted the cut over his eye and on his forehead. He was not afraid of the black spots. They were normal at the tension that he was pulling on the line. Twice, though, he had felt faint and dizzy, and that had worried him. 
I could not fail myself and die on a fish like this, he said. Now that I have him coming so beautifully, God help me endure. I'll say a hundred Our Fathers and a hundred Hail Marys, but I cannot say them now. Consider them, said, he thought. I'll say them later. Just then he felt a sudden banging and jerking on the line he held with his two hands. It was sharp and hard-feeling and heavy. He's hitting the wire leader with his spear, he thought. That was bound to come. He had to do that. It may make him jump, though. I would rather he stayed circling now. The jumps were necessary for him to take air. But after that, each one can widen the opening of the hook wound, and he can throw the hook. Don't jump, fish, he said. Don't jump. The fish hit the wire several times more, and each time he shook his head, the old man gave up a little line. I must hold his pain where it is, he thought. Mine does not matter. I can control mine. But his pain could drive him mad. After a while, the fish stopped beating at the wire and started circling slowly again. The old man was gaining line steadily now, but he felt faint again. He lifted some seawater with his left hand and put it on his head. Then he put more on and rubbed the back of his neck. I have no cramps, he said. He'll be up soon, and I can last. You have to last. Don't even speak of it. He kneeled against the bow and for a moment slipped the line over his back again. I'll rest now when he goes out in the circle and then stand up and work on him when he comes in, he decided. It was a great temptation to rest in the bow and let the fish make one circle by himself without recovering any line. But when the strain showed the fish had turned to come toward the boat, the old man rose to his feet and started the pivoting and the weaving pulling that brought in all the line he gained. I'm tireder than I have ever been, he thought. And now the trade wind is rising. But that will be good to take him in with. I need that badly. I'll rest on the next turn as he goes out, he said. I feel much better. Then in two or three turns more, I will have him. His straw hat was far in the back of his head, and he sank down into the bow with a pull of the line as he felt the fish turn. You work. Now, fish, he thought, I'll take you at the turn. The sea had risen considerably, but it was a fair weather breeze and he had to have it to get home. I'll just steer south and west, he said. A man is never lost at sea and it is a long island. It was on the third turn that he saw the fish first. He saw him first as a dark shadow that took so long to pass under the boat that he could not believe its length. No, he said. He can't be that big. But he was that big. And at the end of this circle, he came to the surface only 30 yards away. And the man saw his tail out of water. It was higher than a big scythe blade and a very pale lavender above the dark blue water. It raked back, and as the fish swam just below the surface, the old man could see his huge bulk and the purple stripes that banded him. His dorsal fin was down and his huge pectorals were spread wide. On this circle, the old man could see the fish's eye and the two gray sucking fish that swam around him. Sometimes they attached themselves to him. Sometimes they darted off. Sometimes they would swim easily in his shadow. They were each over three feet long, and when they swam fast, they lashed their whole bodies like eels. The old man was sweating now, but from something else besides the sun. 
On each calm, placid turn the fish made, he was gaining line, and he was sure that in two turns more he would have a chance to get the harpoon in. But I must get him close, 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 he thought. I mustn't try for the head, I must get the heart. Be calm and strong, old man, he said. On the next circle, the fish's back was out, but he was a little too far from the boat. On the next circle, he was still too far away, but he was higher out of water, and the old man was sure that by gaining some more line, he could have him alongside. He'd rigged his harpoon long before, and its coil of light rope was in a round basket, and the end was made fast to the bit in the bow. The fish was coming in on his circle now, calm and beautiful looking, and only his great tail moving. The old man pulled on him all that he could to bring him closer. For just a moment, the fish turned a little on his side. Then he straightened himself and began another circle. I moved him, the old man said. I moved him then. He felt faint again now, but he held on the great fish all the strain that he could. I moved him, he thought. Maybe this time I can get him over. Pull hands, he thought. Hold up, legs. Last for me, head, last for me. You never went. This time I'll pull him over. But when he put all of his effort on, starting it well out before the fish came alongside and pulling with all his strength, the fish pulled partway over and then righted himself and swam away. Fish, the old man said. Fish, you're going to have to die anyway. You have to kill me too. That way nothing is accomplished, he thought. His mouth was too dry to speak, but he could not reach for the water now. I must get him alongside this time, he thought. I'm not good for many more turns. Yes, you are, he told himself. You're good forever. On the next turn, he nearly had him. But again the fish righted himself and swam slowly away. You are killing me, fish, the old man thought. But you have a right to. Never have I seen a greater or more beautiful or a calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills who. Now, you're getting confused in the head, he thought. You must keep your head clear. Keep your head clear and know how to suffer like a man or a fish, he thought. Clear up, head he said in a voice he could hardly hear. Clear up. Twice more it was the same on the turns. I do not know, the old man thought. He'd been in the point of feeling himself go each time. I do not know, but I will try it once more. He tried it once more, and he felt himself going when he turned the fish. The fish righted himself and swam off again slowly with a great tail weaving in the air. I'll try it again, the old man promised, although his hands were mushy now and he could only see well in flashes. He tried it again and it was the same. So he thought and he felt himself going before he started. I will try it. Once again, he took all his pain and what was left of his strength and his long-gone pride, and he put it against the fish's agony, and the fish came over onto his side, 
and swam gently on his side, his bill almost touching the planking of the skiff, and started to pass the boat, long, deep, wide, silver, and barred with purple, and interminable in the water. The old man dropped the line and put his foot on it and lifted the harpoon as high as he could and drove it down with all his strength and more strength he had just summoned into the fish's side just behind the great chest fin that rose high in the air to the altitude of the man's chest. He felt the iron go in and he leaned on it and drove it further and then pushed all his weight after it. Then the fish came alive with his death in him and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and his beauty. He seemed to hang in the air above the old man in the skiff. Then he fell into the water with a crash that sent spray over the old man and over all of the skiff. The old man felt faint and sick, and he could not see well. But he cleared the harpoon line and let it run slowly through his raw hands. And when he could see, he saw the fish was on his back with his silver belly up. The shaft of the harpoon was projecting at an angle from the fish's shoulder, and the sea was discoloring with the red of the blood from his heart. First it was dark as a shoal in the blue water that was more than a mile deep. Then it spread like a cloud. The fish was silvery and still and floated with the waves. The old man looked carefully in the glimpse of vision that he had. Then he took two turns of the harpoon line around the bit in the bow and laid his head on his hands. Keep my head clear, he said against the wood of the bow. I am a tired old man, but I have killed this fish, which is my brother. And now I must do the slave work. And what a reading of a great, great American novel, Charlton Heston, the late, great Charlton Heston. In 1953, The Old Man in the Sea was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and it was cited by the Nobel Committee as contributing to their awarding of the Nobel Prize in Literature to Hemingway in 1954. The Old Man in the Sea, here on Our American Stories. ¶¶ 